there's a skill set underneath what looks like impossible. And from that point on, I really did spend the next, I don't know, 40 years trying to figure out how people do the impossible. This episode is brought to you by Ample Meal, founded by my friend Connor Young. Ample is a new entrant to the supplement market, but it's not a supplement like a protein shake, which is you know limited in my experience, but it's a complete meal in a bottle, and it's healthy. So just add water, shake it up, add a little bit more water, and then drink it. So if you're on the go, if you're a busy professional, if you're a warrior in the field, this is your new MRE. They come in 400 and 600 calorie versions. They have a ketogenic version and also all sorts of things coming online. Ample meal, terrific stuff, and it really tastes good as well. Um, No GMO, uh, no gluten, all very healthy um, ingredients. This is a breakthrough, I think, for uh, food supplementation, and um, I love it. It's a go-to for me. I, I drink one a day. All right, so go to amplemeal.com. Connor has generously offered you two bonus meals. These are like 6 or $7 um, value each for any order over $50. So go to amp- amplemeal.com. Unbeatable is your code. Check it out. I love this stuff. It is fantastic, and it's one of a kind. Hoo-yah. Hey, folks, this is Mark Devine back at you with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Thanks so much for being with me today. Super appreciate it. As you know, I do not take it for granted. There are literally a bazillion and one things vying for your attention. And so I'm excited today to be talking about how we can maybe push back against that with uh, my friend Stephen Kotler, who is a best-selling author of too many books to name, and most recently, um, Stealing Fire. And you may recall also we spoke to his co-author, uh, Jamie Wheel recently. Uh, but before we get started, and before I kind of let Stephen tell you in his own words who he is, let me remind you that it certainly helps if you rate our podcast, particularly if you give it five stars. So the way to do that is just to start, like to be opposite world, just start on the right side and click the first button to the far right when you see the five stars in iTunes, and that'll automatically give me five stars. How cool is that? You don't have to think twice about it. All right. Also, look for our new SealFit Bootcamp, which is going to be a cutting edge, like really revolutionary functional fitness program where we weave the unbeatable mind mental training into the digital workouts. So you can follow along and practice your breath and positive dialogue and imagery and task orientation while you train. So it's going to be very cool. We're going to launch that. The goal is April 15th. So stay tuned. All right, Steve, thanks so much for joining me. You're in uh, New Mexico right now, busy as heck. The phone is dinging and ringing. <laughs> you got a lot going on. Let's start with just like, I, I like to, people just get a sense for the character of the guest. You know, like, what is your like ethos? What drives you, you know, and, and what were some of the influences in your life that, that made you who you are today as a very successful author and, and thought leader? You want to know where I came from? Yeah, or you want not just geo- not geographically, although that's interesting to people. But like, where you came from? What were the what were the myths and memes uh, that yeah. were part of your upbringing that led you where you are? A lot of my life, since I was little, like eight nine years old, has been well. I think I've been shaped by three forces more than anything else: mm-hmm. skiing, hurling myself down mountains at high speed okay, from check. a like check. Um, Love that. Writing, 
right? I wrote my first poem when I was five. My mom had me, she was young, didn't have a lot of money, didn't really know what she was doing, but she knew books were good. So she would go to the library and get 50 books and just read them to me and then get 50 more. So I was raised in this world of words and both of those were huge influences. And I, I, I just tell you the story because I, I, I don't tell it very often. Um, when I was eight or nine years old, my brother, my kid brother, comes home. He's been in a friend's Eric's house and a couple of years younger than me. I'm in the kitchen. I'm talking to mom. And he walks in and he holds up this red ball, this red sponge ball. And he takes it from one hand and he puts it in the other and it disappears. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and two things go through my mind. One is like, holy fuck, right. I've got a problem capturing mom's attention anymore like this is now <laughs> like this is now it's war buddy okay not okay and the other thing is it was like my baby brother just did something that honestly had looked impossible to me right like he made a ball disappear and i knew my brother wasn't magic yeah. so it was at that moment in my mind i went oh wait a minute there's a skill set underneath what looks like impossible right. and from that point on i really did spend the next i don't know 50, 40 years trying to figure out how people do the impossible. Well, it doesn't matter really what domain, right? It could be right. rise to Superman. I'm talking about action sport athletes pushing the bounds of kinesthetic possibility. Mm-hmm. It could be old and we're looking at, you know, entrepreneurs building kind of world changing companies overnight or abundance people taking on grand global challenges like poverty or energy. Right? These right. are all impossible quests. So right. I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but those were three very forces. No, I think, I think that you did. So first, you know, love for adventure and, and extreme sports. So hurling yourself down, you know, a 60 degree slope on an icy mountaintop isn't normal, even though we pretend to think it's normal, you know, over the last hundred years, right? But it's really not normal. I don't think human beings were designed to do that necessarily, right? So that's one thing. And then this influence of your mom, like in the writing, it's fascinating. I mean, so I could see how I'm not sure how those connect up yet, but then later on in your writing on, on, you know, exploring flow and potential, they start to connect, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, first and foremost, when, when I'm, I'm a creative, I'm an artist, right? I was trained as a fiction writer. I was trained as a novelist. I fell into magazine journalism that led me into book writing, nonfiction book writing, which, you know, led me into a career of science, but like, you know, one led to the other, led to the other, but the, the words have always been at the part of it. And I, you know, when I read books like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, that's sort of the godfather of flow psychology, which I'm sure we're going to get to in a second, wrote a book on creativity. In it, he describes one of the stuff about the creative personality type, which right. is a kind of a, like it's a both and, right? You're very, very quiet, very, very loquacious. You're very, very, you're right, that sort of thing. And I'm reading it and I was like, oh yeah, this is me. He's got me. He's got me down. Like there's nothing special about me. I'm right there on that page. Yeah, that was such a classic work. And, you know, I love, I often quote um, him, but I try not to do it um, verbally because I could never pronounce his name. Uh, So we call him Shits and Molly. But that's not too far off, is it? Okay, so I'm going to give you the uh, so so true story. It's got to be very pneumatic. I'm on NPR, I think Cleveland, Ohio. My second my second book has come out where I wrote about his work, and I slaughter his name. (laughs) Of course, the phone rings, and somebody gets on and says, "Please tell the idiot it's (laughs) Mihai Chick sent me high Chick." Sent Chick me high. Sent me high. Oh, there we go. I knew there right. was a mnemonic. There's a mnemonic. There you are. And by the way, fairly appropriate. 
Fairly high. Knee high, chick set knee high. Okay, I got that. What I, one of the things that always stuck with me in his writing was how he said, you know, when, when you talk about accidental flow, okay, which I'm, what I mean by that is just to characterize some of our discussion here, you know, I train for deliberate flow access, right? I think that I believe, based upon my experience as a SEAL and a longtime martial artist and yogi, that, you know, you can train your brain to uh, access flow at will or very quickly, right? By setting up the conditions in your mind for, you know, for that to happen. And what um, Chick sent me high was talking about was really that uh, people who just accidentally trigger flow because of the conditions they set themselves in. And he said there were two things, and you can elaborate on this, I hope, is two things that have to occur. One is the challenge level has to be slightly higher than than their skill level, right? And two is they have to have, you know, trained relentlessly to the point where when they meet that point, they don't back down, but they press into the that unknown, right? And so now they, they, they develop or they've developed or they access, you know, that shibumi, that Japanese concept of shibumi, which is effortless perfection. But it has to happen when the challenge level is high and their skill level is high, and then they the challenge level slightly raises above their skill level. So they have to kind of like step into that unknown and shut off their active thinking faculties. Right. I don't probably didn't articulate it exactly, but I remember he had a little chart, like one was skill level, one was challenge level. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're totally, you're right. So what we know now, so flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. Right. Chicksepe High identified three psychological triggers. Um, you were just talking about one of them often called the golden rule of flow, which is the challenge skills balance, right? Oh, right. And easiest way to explain this is flow follows focus. It can only show up right when all of our attention is focused on the right here, right now. Right. So that's what all these triggers do, right? They're ways of focusing attention on the present moment, right? They're the 20 things evolution shaped our brain to pay a lot of attention to. Mm-hmm. And we pay a lot of attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds the skill set. Right. You want to stretch, but not snap. And yes, because flow is what happens when a bunch of different chunks. Right. We've laid down. We've, we've learned the skills already. We've learned mm-hmm. big of it. Right. So it usually you can have flow in novel experiences. Right? It happens all the time. You go traveling. Mm-hmm. A bunch of novelty produces a bunch of dopamine drives. Your focus into the now produces flow. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing it with an activity, you may get a bunch of flow early on. You're just learning how to ride a skateboard. And the first time you ride down a hill, not much skill there, but you get some flow. That mm-hmm. tends to pay fairly quickly. And then you start having that layer skills on it. And flow will show up when all the chunks lock together into place at once. And what's underneath that actually is pattern recognition. When we link ideas together, it could be kinesthetic ideas, could be cognitive ideas, creative ideas, we get a little burst of dopamine. Mm-hmm. You've felt it, you've done a crossword puzzle, right? You get a right answer, you get that little burst of pleasure, that's dopamine. It's a focusing chemical, drives focus. So all of these, all of the triggers, all 20 of them, including the three that Chick sent me high identified, drive focus in the present moment. Right. We found, you know, th- th- there's 10 that drive people into group flow, the shared collective version of the state, and now 10 that drive people into kind of individual flow. These are based upon your research or, or Chick Sent Me High's research, or where are these 20 flow triggers? Uh, who identified them? Chick Sent Me High identified Six. three psychological triggers clear goals, immediate feedback, and the challenge skills balance. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Okay. And clear goals are different than big goals. Clear goals means I know what I'm doing right now. I know what I'm doing next. So I'm going to bench press and then I'm going to jump rope. Right. Like that's, that's what, and it, the reason it's important for flow is so your attention doesn't wander. What am I supposed to do next? Where am I? No, it stays right focused on the present. You know what you're doing. Immediate feedback is the same thing. It's course correction in real time, mm-hmm. right? Like what action sports are awesome for. If you don't set that ski edge on, you know, top of the shoot, you're on a Facebook, that's right to the bottom, right? It's immediate feedback. So uh, a guy named Keith Sawyer, psychologist at the University of North Carolina, identified 10 social triggers for flow. He spent 15 years videotaping Second City Television and watching from the moment the comedy troupe, the improv troupe, came together and the, and the level of funny went through the roof. Right. And then he did video analysis using, and so he came up with 10 tools. He writes about these in his book, or 10 triggers. He writes about it in his book, Group Genius. And then our work at the Flow Genome Project has identified uh, seven more. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So of the seven, five are, are triggers that really work for action sport athletes. Everything from, you know, risk, right? Again, it triggers dopamine, those sorts of things, to, you know, novelty, complexity, unpredictability. Whenever we're in the encounter those things, again, you get dopamine, focuses attention. Um, and then creativity is the last one. So five that, that, that are sort of those triggers, we call them environmental triggers, they're things in the environment. And then creativity is the last one. And underneath creativity, all I'm talking about is pattern recognition, right? So you're just talking about the fact that when you link ideas together, you get dopamine. Right. Yeah, by the way, Mark. <laughs> Interesting. Totally honest. There's a shit ton more, Yeah. right? Like, yeah. you know, frame rate, things moving past your eyes really closely. Something in, in there is definitely a trigger. So like mountain bikers or dirt bike riders, when they go from out on the forest into a single track almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, right frame rate shrinks people drop into flow so we know that's there and obviously if we're talking about flow sex triggers uh you know an almost nearly at you know there's a flow state triggered by sex obviously sex catches you know focuses our attention but what is it is it lust is it like nobody's looked at that we just i just can point to these places and say hey there's stuff going on here and we just don't we haven't nobody nobody's gone deep enough yet right so that's fascinating. So essentially what we're talking about is anything that's going to radically change the brain state from thinking to, to perceiving and using the skills of perception, direct perception, as well as pattern, you know, the, the, the patterns that you've gro- grooved into your subconscious through training, you know, and, and, you know, whether that's being music or an extreme sport or, or even a mathematician getting in the flow state. What I'd like to do is, um, and I can see how there's a lot of different things that are going to be able to trigger that, right? Both externally, environmentally, as well as internally. So I don't get lost in this discussion here. Let's talk about both subjective and objective experience of flow. So we've already talked about, so we'll start with the objective because you've already brought up dopamine. And there's a lot of, you know, science around, uh, emerging around that, you know, flow state and altered states and consciousness is all really about just pattern recognition, like you alluded to, chemical and hormonal balances or releases. So what are some of the other objective things happening in flow? I mean, brainwave patterns, you're going to dip into an alpha state, right? And so your brain waves are going to slow down for the most part. Is that correct or am I off there? 21st century normal, you and I right now, hyperactivity in the prefrontal cortex, part of the brain that's right behind your forehead, right? This is higher cognitive function, right. sense of morality, sense of will, right? Brain waves in a fast moving beta wave, right. 
um, where we are right now. And pretty much for most people, a steady drip drip of stress hormones like norepinephrine and cortisol. That is 21st century normal or what psychologists call tired, wired and chronically stressed. Um, Inflow signature shifts completely. So instead of hyperactivity in the prefrontal cortex, it quiets down. That's it's called transient, meaning temporary hypo frontality. Hypo the opposite of hypo. Hypo frontality. Okay. Hypo what does that look like in terms of uh, brain? Let's okay. use brain waves for example. No, so the two different things. Okay. If you want to talk about, if you want to talk about where things happen in the brain, what brain function? You want to talk about three things: neural anatomy, where is it taking place? Right. Chemistry and neuroelectricity, which are two ways the brain sends signals. Right. 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 So neuroanatomically, the prefrontal cortex gets very quiet. This is why self disappears. That right. sense of self gets very quiet. Self is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. It's a network. Network starts to quiet down. We can't create our sense of self. So that inner critic, that nagging always on voice in your head goes quiet. Brain waves move from beta down through alpha. But what the research shows is flows baseline is actually closer to the alpha theta borderline. Mm-hmm. So right. Alpha is daydreaming mode. Yeah. Essentially. And theta is where you are in the hypnagogic state or during REM sleep. Right. Mm-hmm. You're falling asleep. Right. And the pink elephant changes into a pink sweater, changes into a pink bratwurst. Mm-hmm. When your brain isn't attaching much, that's a good signal you're in theta. And neurochemicals, stress hormones flush out and you get feel good performance enhancing chemicals like serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, anandamide, oxytocin. Okay. So it's a confluence of where the brain activity is happening, mm-hmm. the chemical released whether it's dopamine, which is going to focus you and make you feel good, or whether it's adrenaline, which is going to stress you out and make you feel agitated, and the neural electrical wavelength, which is either in a beta or gamma hyperexcited, or beta, us having a conversation, or when we're in flow, is going to be more around that alpha-theta line. So when the three come together, what happens if only like one of them happens? Yeah, so it's a really great question, and the, and the absolute, totally truthful answer is we don't know. Chick sent me high, said, hey, wait a minute. I think there's micro flow on one end of the spectrum and macro flow on the other. And he writes, he had 10 phenomenological characteristics of flow. How does it make me feel, right? And this was uninterrupted concentration, merger of action awareness, vanishing itself, time Mm -hmm. passes, strength, et cetera, et cetera. That's the subjective part, which I think is critical too. But anyways, we'll come back to that. Right. That's the subjective part. And, And we simplify it even more in Stealing Fire and came up with a even simpler framework that we think is yeah. maybe a little more helpful, but it's a spectrum, right? It's a spectrum experience. It's like any, like anger, right? You could be a little irked. You could be homicidally murderous. It's the same emotion. So, so let me stop. So microflow would be like, you know, if I'm a golfer and I just happened to hit just an unbelievable shot and I'm like, holy cow, I don't know how I did that versus someone being in flow for an entire 18 holes or maybe a, a season or how, what, how, just differentiate between micro and macro. So that's interesting. I, I, I think you're right on your example, though. I don't think about it. I've never thought about it that way. I would say I, I, I take it a little back back one step further to the kind of the mechanical, which is if a couple of flows, initial conditions show up like time, you don't notice time passing, right? Right. Hours fine. You don't notice. You're not really thinking about yourself and you're really focused. Right. Right. That's micro flow, like where I got this morning when I was writing macro yeah. flow was where I was yesterday when I was skiing 40 miles an hour through the trees and 
I had all the conditions. Time was going slow and my sense of self was totally gone. I was completely focused in the moment and, you know, all that stuff. Well, I can see how the elevation of risk is going to cause your attention to be more outward versus inward. So I would suggest that, you know, you can focus your flow inward, which is going to be the writing experience, or outward, which is going to be to keep yourself from missing the trees whizzing by you. And that's going to change the subjective experience a little bit. There's, but you have to also remember there's a lot of risk in creativity. That's true. But yeah. uh, Right, not, not necessarily life and death risk. You know, I mean, yeah. So it's, the time domain is a little different. You may kill your career over 20 years, but you're not going to kill yourself in three seconds when you hit that tree. Right. <laughs> That's fascinating. I love it. You know, it's, it's interesting how much research has been on, you know, how much work you guys have done with the flow genome and picking up the work that um, that Chick sent me high. <laughs> I actually have to look at that written down when I say his name until I, no, until I pattern that into my right. mind and I can say chick sent me high in the flow state myself. Like, I have to tell you something, five years from now, you're not going to remember one thing I said, but you're going to remember how to pronounce <laughs> I can remember how to pronounce his name. <laughs> exactly. Let's come back to that whole subjective experience because that's been, you know, I'm relatively new. It's probably pretty obvious to all the science behind flow. When we were in the SEAL teams, you know, we didn't give a, you know what about the science what we cared about is what is going to allow us to perform and to survive the mission and to bring our teammates home and so we did all sorts of things you know the the, the long periods of silence was akin to mindfulness meditation you know because we used to say that you know i'm sure you probably heard this from your work with dev grew and whatnot that you know an operation is like 23 hours of utter boredom you know, broken with 30 minutes or, or 45 minutes of sheer terror, right? So that 23 or 23 and a half hours, the true warriors were contemplating, meditating, breathing. That was practice time. And there's a lot of skill development and, you know, tweaking your gear and it's like wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. You know, let me tape my gear up a little bit more. And there's a lot of those, um, you know, a lot of some uh, patterning that's going on, which is not necessarily the patterning of the extreme athlete, but although it's, it happens with them too, it's the mental patterning of the inner domain, you know, You're refining how to shift your attention really quickly, refining, like you said, how do you shift out of the regions of the neocortex that is actively thinking versus the region that's watching what's thinking and still performing, those types of things. And SEALs, we just figured that shit out. You know what I mean? Most of us. Well, I mean, look, you, 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 the SEALs are excellent at it. That's, I mean, that's the first thing I learned is like, you guys, re, like, you don't get to be a SEAL unless you, you're not best in the world at figuring this out, right? Same thing with action adventure sport athletes I was working with, Absolutely, right? Yeah. A handful of them, Dean Potter, a couple other people, had enough. They, they were cross-training with action sports and meditation practices and psychedelic practices. And, like they were experimenting with states of consciousness so they could – and they had read enough that they could speak learnedly on it. But as a general rule, they had no idea what they were doing. They were just excellent at it because they needed to survive, right? Right, right, exactly. It was just – so that was how we got to these triggers, right? We started with guys like you and guys like the athletes. And we said, okay, we've got all this neuroscience. Let's work backwards mm-hmm. to triggers. Like, like that's how we're going to do it. And that's, you know, that was the process, you know, long before we started testing ideas, mm-hmm. we just talking to people and, you know, what did you, what did the best in the world do intuitively? And let's work backwards to some science and see if we can get it right. And then, you know, test the hypothesis. Yeah, that's cool. I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found 
valuable. So I wanted to tell you about qualia. Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly. But when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing qualia, designed by my friends at the Neurohacker Collective, for several months now. And it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect, which would make me feel agitated like caffeine, or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, it's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting neurohacker.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com, and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R, that's UNBEATABLEMIND15R, to get 15% off the life of your order. Trust me on this one, you won't be disappointed with Qualia. Let's talk about the four subjective experiences of flow. You, you rattled through uh, a bunch of them earlier, and you mentioned yeah, that, so, that in Stealing yeah. Fire, you kind, of, you kind of came up with a better framework. And I know that time was one of them, the feeling of being very present and basically maybe experiencing time the way it really is, as opposed to kind of the, our mental linear concept of time. But what, so let's talk through, I think there are four primary subjective yeah, experiences. Yeah, we use the acronym STIR, STIR okay. which stands for Selflessness, Timelessness, effortlessness and richness. And let me just walk through them quick. Yeah, okay. Selflessness, we got, we talked about it, right? Your sense right. of self disappears. Right. Same thing happens with sense of time. Time is also calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. So uh, David Eagleman at Stanford actually did most of the work on this. He figured out that prefrontal cortex starts to shut down, right? And it's, by the way, it's not fancy. It's an efficiency exchange. Your brain says, hey, I need a lot of energy for focus and attention right now. Let's pull it away from from non-critical areas and keeping track of the future and the past, not super helpful, right? right? right. When you want to focus up, right? So you get, and you get obviously enormous performance benefit from this Mm -hmm. because your inner it goes off. Most of our fears are, as you pointed out a second ago, they're either in the past or in the future. Very, unless you're skiing through the trees at 40 miles an hour or a Navy SEAL for that half an hour, very little shit is happening right here, right now. Mm-hmm. So fear goes away, anxiety drops, risk taking literally measurably goes up, creativity, because you're no longer doubting your need ideas, goes up, right? All kinds of stuff like that. We feel that great liberation, that freedom. Mm-hmm. We're out our own way. Simultaneously, we get this great sense of effortlessness. If I was talking, if I was, if I was being really dry and psychological, I'd say, well, yes, intrinsic motivation goes through the roof in flow. If I was being uh, neurobiological, I would say, well, yes, you get five of the most potent feel-good drugs the brain can produce in this state, and flow is a huge addictive state. Or if I was just, you know, if I was trying to describe it to me, and you, know, I'd say, look, it feels like effortless effort. Shabumi, the word you use. Right. Effort- perfection that's a great way to talk about it it's mm-hmm. like i am just like i am a vessel for the universe right i always right. say one of the things i wrote a book called a small furry prayer is my third book and i wrote it in a non-stop flow straight over like a course of three weeks i mean no I kidding. Had- how cool is that 
but it all came together. And so do you think that's like cre- a, a creative genius, like Beethoven channeling the fifth symphony? You know, obviously he's in a flow state, but it's an extended state where all of a sudden shit is just coming right through him. It seems like the, the joke. The, well, that's what I mean. Like the stealing fire did really well. It was nominated for a Pulitzer. got a lot of attention. And I have no idea who wrote it. Like I, I sure didn't, I couldn't do it again. I'm not quite sure where it came from. They're all chunks of it. I open it up and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I have no idea who did that. Right. So how to do that. Maybe your editors did it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, thank right? you for that part. Yeah. You have that feeling. And that, I mean, right. flow does that, right? right like for sure. don't you, and I, you know, I think that's part of the, like, especially when it's physical, right. And you're doing something and it's dangerous. There's that, that feeling of like, I can't believe what's going on. And I mean, what, what's amazing about it is all that's happened is your subconscious, right? Your adaptive unconscious is taken over processing. And the adaptive unconscious is thought moves at 150 miles an hour. Unconscious mm-hmm. thought moves nearly at light speed, mm-hmm. right? Thought is limited to about, you can hold about five items in your, you know, in your working memory until you're overloaded. The subconscious is endless, right? So, you know, very rarely when you're awake, Right. You actually get to watch the subconscious do its thing at that speed in flow. You're actually, you know, you get to sort of move at the speed of the subconscious and it feels like magic. You're like, what? And if it's creativity, doesn't feel like your brain is dreaming up the words. And if it's, you know, physicality, you're not quite sure how you're doing what, what it is that you're doing. Right. I think it's fascinating. And it'd be interesting to talk about maybe the environmental triggers that cause one experience to slow down, like to the point where, you know, you're just like, everything's moving in this like really slow time. I've experienced that in, in a lot of uh, Qigong and Tai Chi experiences and training. Like we used to do one simple drill where we'd have our palm facing the ground and we would drop a quarter above the, the top of our hand. And then we would practice catching the quarter. And at first it was a mechanical thing. And then after... You know, after maybe 50 or 100 of these, because, you know, we've been training for a long time in other ways, it all of a sudden realized it wasn't about catching the quarter. It was about, you know, changing the focus of where, you know, where your mind is at, softening your gaze, seeing, you know, tapping into, you know, the experience, the subjective experience of slowing down time and seeing kind of the lattice work around everything. And then all of a sudden, your mind could see the quarter like dropping like chick, 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 and you just turn your palm over and it's right there. You know, well, so it's so so that was an experience of time collapsing and and activating a flow state, but it took a little bit of a little bit of training. But most of the training wasn't how to catch the quarter; it was right. how to move your mind. Well, what? Do you, yeah, I mean, totally right. So th- this actually, we could we could kill two birds with one stone. The the R that richness, yes. right? We selfless oh, yeah. time. Got it. This richness stands for information richness, and it's exactly what you're describing, which it feels is like the, a lattice of energy around you. That's the you take, you're, you're taking in more information per second. Mm-hmm. You're processing it more quickly and processing it more completely. So more pattern recognition, more yeah. lateral thinking, yeah. salience, more attention to the present, and um, more data per second. So l- one of the reasons, you know, time slows down, so there's arguments on all sides on this, but um, one of the reasons time slows down is because we think we, a lot of people seem to think time is a measure of how much information you're taking per second, mm-hmm. right? You normally take in a fixed amount of information in flow. It seems like that widens. It doesn't mm-hmm. even have to widen by that much, right? Like if you think about your soft gaze that you mm-hmm. had to do for the quarter catch, right? Not adding that much data 
with the soft gates. You're adding a few more data bits, 10, 20, 30, right? Doesn't matter. But we have a fixed, you know, Chick sent me high calculated that most of us can only pay attention to about 120 bits of data per second. And just to put that in perspective, 60 bits is what it takes to listen to me talk. Two people, you and I start talking at one, at once, mm-hmm. your listeners maxed, right? Like the house can catch on fire behind them and they don't have bandwidth. They will not know. why we can't multitask, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So richness, selflessness, timeless, effortlessness. I mean, I totally, you guys nailed it. I love that. And each one of those has a whole kind of subjective expression depending upon what, you know, the type of flow, right? Whether it's a creative experience like writing or, you know, skiing down this slope or, you know, a Navy SEAL in a firefight. And I guess one of the things that I'm, I'm struggling with, there's a couple of things I'm struggling with. I want to take maybe, you know, go down one of those little rabbit holes that we talked about before our call. One is, and I feel this way with a lot of things these days, is I really enjoyed the mystery of it. You know what I mean? Like I loved the mystery of, of training in the martial arts and yoga and not always having to have the freaking answer as to why I could do certain things or, or to explain how Nakamura, you know, could cut through six blocks of ice with his forehead. You know what I mean? And you know how um, some of my friends in the seals were able to literally walk through the most intense firefight, being able to see the patterns and know that they're going to be 100% safe and just go do the mission. Right. When I wrote Rise of Superman, Alex Honnold, who's probably, you know, the greatest living rock climber, who's a friend, calls me up and he said, well, he said, it's really well written, (laughs) but I had a really hard time reading it. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, I don't want to know how the sausage is made. Exactly. I I don't want to be reduced to a biological mechanism, you know? And I I always say with this is just because I can, there's mystery right outside the science, right? Like the science doesn't mean that there's mystery. Like, you know, for example, inflow, the question we were talking about earlier, right? Writing felt like channeling. So where does the information come from? Is it all pattern recognition? What, like what else is, because you certainly in these states feel like you're tapping into a richer information stream, right? The Greeks called it divine inspiration for a reason, right? Like, so we don't, you earlier, before we got on the podcast, you, you raised the question of what is AI going to bring to this? Yeah, that's that's cool. And yeah. it's one of the things that I – to answer that question now for you is – so with AI, we're going to start we're moving into the edge of intuitive AI right now. Mm-hmm. So massive heightened pattern recognition, right? So we're going to get – by watching this develop, we're going to get a sense of maybe an answer to that question of where does the information come from? Cause we'll get to see what like the super pattern recognition system on, on high produces and we'll be able to map it and compare it to our own experiences. And, and I think it'll get us a little bit farther, but it's just a little bit farther because the mystery is right on the other side of that little bit farther. And I like, thank God, right. That's yeah. so compelling. That's the, that's part of the fun. I mean, that's, you know, that's the fun of science is you get to like kind of probe the mystery and you just get to the next question. Right. It doesn't go away. You just get to the next question. Right. I always said, like, I wrote Rise of Superman because I wanted other I wanted to just like, let's establish a common language for this thing. So, like, other smart people can get in here and like, Mother I'm out of ideas. Yeah. Let's get to the next, you know, help me get to the next question. I, like, this is the best I got. You no, know, I, I agree with you. And, and on my most optimistic days, I think that uh, AI will really help us explore the full or not just explore, but 
tap into the full potential of the human being, right? And it'll do it in ways that obviously we, we can't really anticipate right now. We just can't see it. The, what we can see is, um, for example, you know, what you wrote about and, and um, disclosed in Stealing Fire about uh, accelerated learning, you know, accessing flow states like the seals in the float tank and piping in Berlitz and learning, you know, a language like Farsi in six weeks as opposed to traditionally, you know, six months or longer. So we know that tapping into biohacks and leveraging multiple or, or I would say stacking uh, flow triggers, <laughs> which is what you, you're doing with a, if you're doing that with a flow tank, breath control, meditation, and then piping in, you know, uh, a biurnal beat with a language, what you're doing essentially is stacking triggers or stacking tools. I'm not sure which term is correct. Probably both. You're stacking both. Yeah, stacking both. tools and triggers. Right. And then what ultimately is going to happen is you're going to see some sort of, you know, intersection where they're going to trigger different chemical, different electrical and different, you know, regional areas in your brain for maximum effect. Now that's and cool. the way, Yeah. And the other thing is this, certainly what all the research has showed is everybody's an individual. Yes. Right. Yeah. A totally like it's going to have a different effect for you. As your it is for your me. flow triggers are not my flow right. triggers. You seem to think the how the state makes us feel. The subjectivity of it is shared. Right. Jason Silva mm-hmm. in, a, in, in a famously calls altered states the language without words that we all share. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true. Right. Like we have this experience. We don't have, we can't put words around it. We, you know, we can describe it. But I, and, and once again, I guess that's the mystery. Yeah, that is the mystery. So that's that's the one way. You know, so virtual reality. You know, I, I think about like the hollow deck or the the construct in the matrix. I think that's where training is going to go. But it might take us hundred years to get there, right? Or fifty to hundred. I don't know. I think some people think it's coming really fast. But that part, that kind of rich experience of virtual reality and using it for training, is you know that's there's a lot of complexity there. Then there's the other part that just, you know, the Kurzweilian kind of view of the world that AI essentially just going to be able to replicate the human experience. And this brings me back to the context of, of this discussion around mystery. And I'm like, I don't know, because there is that all of this discussion is really interesting to allow us to kind of tap into our potential and to experience rich, uh, maybe a rich, more um, nuanced life and to perform. But I don't think at least you and I don't mistake that for the totality of what the human experience is, right? For instance, is there a soul and what is spirit and what is, what is it channel? What is it that when Einstein channels the, not Einstein, but um, Beethoven channels the fifth or the eighth symphony, there's something beyond that. And, and we'll just, you know, will a AI, be able to channel that or tap into that or experience that. Let me, I mean, let me put it, forget, forget all the, forget all the mystery, the, the, the metaphysicality for a second. Yeah. Think about it this way. When you have a party and everybody leaves, the house feels empty. It doesn't <laughs> look empty or sound empty. It feels mm-hmm. empty, right? Absence of life. Right. Sensation. Right. So presence of life is also a sensation. Right. Mm. And in a weird way, like at a fundamental level, mirror neurons, empathy, I think at the basic level, empathy is a is a life detector. We're detecting other life. That's the first thing we're doing. And then we're modeling and mirroring and doing all that stuff. But there's a built in life detector. So the question is, am I going to be able to build a robot, an AI brain? You detect life in. Right. Because what we found is, you know, when they build robots that are too lifelike, it crosses what, what they call the uncanny valley. And we tend to get revolted by them. 
right? It's it's literally like it's a physical, people have a physical response. If we make robots that are too lifelike, we tend to feel disgust in their presence. Mm. And it's called it's called the uncanny valley, the valley between like actual life and artificial life. They can't figure out like nobody quite knows why. They just know that we have this reaction. It's, that's you know, fascinating. It's, I've never heard that. So that movie Her, where he, where the guy falls in love with his uh, Siri like AI, is that's not borne out by you know current it, research. It, it is borne out because I mean you you certainly see like you know you can, they they've done studies of those. In Japan, they have all kinds of animatronic stuffed animals, basically, mm. right? Like fake, fake dogs, fake cats, whatever. And you can get an oxytocin reaction. Kids will get oxytocin from petting the robot, right? So, like, you can – some of it, yes, some of it, no. It seems to be too lifelike is, is what freaks I us see. out when it looks too so much it like – it looks like a human. Right, but yeah. if you don't make it – that's why if you see – so a lot of the robots that they're making, they look a little ridiculous. They're kind of boxy and ridiculous, right? yeah. They, they're kind of more like a mechanical pet, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, so, I mean but all this stuff starts to get really interesting because we can start – we have the technology to ask the questions. We've never had that before. Right. So we – you know, it's a great time to be on the roller coasters is how I think about it. Yeah, no kidding. I agree. Well said and probably a good uh, segue to kind of like – move on because we've been at this for a while we could probably talk about this stuff forever what are you i've working- got that. i've got a, i gotta i gotta call peter in yeah you gotta some- call peter so let me talk let me let me uh shout out to peter for, by the way because you guys wrote a tremendous book two of them actually abundance really i gotta admit helped me understand you know the power the positive power of technology and also of course you know start to see you know, with his six, you know, D's, the, you know, how it's all coming in a very kind of accelerated fashion. And that got me to come and go meet Peter and go to his abundance thing every year. And, and it's really neat. I love the work that he has done and what you have done with him by capturing that knowledge. So abundance. And then the follow on was bold, where you actually looked at the entrepreneurs who were kind of, like you said, in that kind of m- macro flow state and doing extraordinary things that, you know, like Elon Musk is now creating a neural network you know, interface company and he's sending people to Mars and you know what I mean? He's, I, I've been waiting for his solar roof to come along <laughs> for a couple right. of years now. I mean, there's one guy He's like, I'm just waiting to go to Mars. I'm waiting for a solar roof. I'm not sure I'll put the neural net into my bloodstream, but we'll, I'll let you test that first. <laughs> but anyways, my point is the bold, the book bold, it talked about the individuals who are really making big moves and your book, Stealing Fire, kind of brings it back to the science of flow. What What is next? Like, we're, you're kind of all over the place, but you have a general movement with your work and writing. So what what's next? Yeah, as, as, so uh, I'm writing a novel right now. First one in 20 years. Oh, just cool. Just, like fiction. just, just I, wanted, I wanted to have some fun. I haven't uh, – that'll be – I'm going to do it pretty quickly. Then I'm uh, writing a book on intuition. Same kind of way I looked at flow. I want to look at the deeper question of intuition. And then, you know, as I said, I've been looking at these impossible questions, you know, in all these domains. And I want to write a book at some point about the overlap, like what I've really seen with all these, you know, taking on the impossible. Because there are, there's, oh, I mean, flow is a huge overlap. We write about overlaps, stealing fire. There's more stuff in bold. It's everywhere. But there's a whole category of stuff that I've seen that crosses all the domains. And I... There are a lot of great people who work with a lot of high performers in the world and have 
you know, and I, I'd love to get everybody in a room and compare notes, but I, the one thing that I think I bring to the equation that other people maybe don't, and Kevin Kelly always says, don't ask what book you want to write, ask what book nobody else can write. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great question. And so I, you know, I think there's stuff because I have looked at everything from like innovators turning science fiction into science fact to kind of punk rock artists to, you know, top business. I, I got, I've seen a wider swatch than most people because mm-hmm. of how I got to make a living along the way. So I, I want to throw my hat in that ring and, and, and add to that conversation a little bit too. So those That's are the cool. yeah. books that are in front of me. Last question. Do you think trainers like me are going to be obsolete in five or 10 years? No, no. So I, and I don't remember who said it. Somebody said it was on the Tim Ferriss podcast and they said, you know, as a general rule, the trainers, the frontline guys are 50 years ahead of the scientists. Mm-hmm. And now, mind you, sometimes the frontline guys are totally batshit crazy. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, thank you very much. You know by the way, you get, I you take get that as, as a compliment. Much, <laughs> you get as, but I mean, it's true. You get as much crazy as you do wisdom. Because that's what the cutting edge always looks like. It's messy, right? If I was talking about as a chaos theorist, I would say the greatest possibility for, you know, evolution, right, is right on the edge of chaos. It's right before everything explodes. That's where you want – it's the most innovative spot in any ecosystem. Same thing with trainers, right? Right. So no, I like – I don't think – I don't think we're going to mechanize this down, you know, in that – I just don't – I don't think performance works that way. You know, it's like – why I would argue with Ray about the singularity and consciousness in AI, mm-hmm. he will say brute force will get us there. Once this thing can calculate X amount of speed right. per second, we're going to have what he calls strong AI, right. right? AI that can mimic human capability. And I always say, Hey, wait a minute. We know consciousness is an emergent property. We also know it's a complex system. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that means something else happens. Right. Like we don't know what an emergent property means. All it says is order out of chaos mm-hmm. happens in the natural world all the time. Mm-hmm. We don't know where it comes from. It defies the laws of thermodynamics in all honesty, but it's a, it's a law of physics works. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the brain, most people will say that the brain is a complex system and emergent property and consciousness is probably an emergent property, which means it may not just be brute force calculation, get it done. And I don't think it is. Ray and I, we, you know, we disagree. And, you know, the great news is computers are advancing so quickly. If I can make it to 2029 on his, his timeline, I get to see if he's right. Right. We can <laughs> exactly. get back. You right. know what I mean? I got to live. I got, according to him, I got to live 13 more years. You got to make, and, we, we got to make it. And we'll know. <laughs> and then so, we can okay, live cool. forever and have a collective hive mind. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I again, this is a whole other subject for another podcast. But my sense is, and, and one of the you know one of the things that we teach is that you know the brain is just one organ of the of the mind, and consciousness you can't be conflated to the brain, including you know the 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 geography of the brain or the chemicals of the brain or electricity of the brain. And you also have the heart, and you have the uh, the belly, and you have the nervous system, and you have the entire body is part in my uh, lexicon is part of your um, mind system and as, as well as the etheric field around you. Let me just take it one step farther just for the fun of it because you'll like this. I will. And then I really do actually have to run. But uh, <laughs> here's, right, here's my last thought. You'll like it. 
So we have a microbiome, right? Like, as you pointed out, we've got as many neurons in the gut and heart as we have in the brain. Right. So the brain is obviously, the mind is a full body system. The full body but system. the microbiome, right? Like, That's there's a mean. good chunk of you, like from your elbow to your fist, that is foreign bacteria, not you, not mm -hmm. human coexisting mm -hmm. you. So one of the questions, flow is optimal performance, right? It's the full brain working together to create this perfect system, altering our consciousness. But is it, does the microbiome also work in concert? Like, is it a multi-species concert? Wow, wow. Right? So, and, and we, we don't know. I mean, it's, it sure seems like if this is optimal performance, you might, the microbiome might get in the, like. Do you think those, that gut bacteria is experiencing flow when you're racing down the, the slope at 70 miles an hour? I think that gut bacteria needs you to be alive to survive. You're its ecosystem. So you're so gonna it's going that. to support I, it's going to support it. I mean, like these are, I, I've talked to a lot of microbiome experts about these questions. Nobody can answer them. Right. But they're great questions. They are. And it's like, we don't think we, when we think about optimal human performance, nobody stops to go, Hey, wait a minute. Maybe it's optimal human plus human post, not quite also you. Right. Right. Cause we're not all human, right? There's a lot of, there's as much junk DNA and virus DNA in your, there's way more virus in your system at a genetic level than there is. And, and, and so Ray, Ray and Elon will say, that's correct. We're not all human already. So let's just add a layer of AI on that and we'll become human 2.0 and see where it goes. I'm not, I mean, it's look, it's going to happen anyways. Mm -hmm. It's going to be punk rockers putting animal eyes, cat eyes and tails. And that's what it's going to be. It's going to be like, it's going to be the fierce things of, of the next decade. That's what, it, I mean, that's where it's going to start. Forget like Ray is going to augment as it fine. Forget it. That's not how culture evolves. Right. It's going to be some, you know, fully sleeved, you know, <laughs> tattooed woman who wants honest to God cat eyes and is going to alter her DNA. And that's where it starts. That's right. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. I think I don't like, I like, I, I, you know, I, I, Ray thinks that the geeks are going to control the world and maybe they will. I think that, you know, the punk rockers will. <laughs> have, yeah. Awesome. On that note. Awesome. <laughs> awesome, that awesome. Note, yeah. On that note, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Steven Collar. So, um, latest book is stealing fire. Go check it out. It's fantastic. And, um, I look forward to reading your novel and, and, uh, continuing this conversation. So thanks so much for your time. Right, this is super fun. Yeah. Like Be good. It All right. Ooh, yeah. Bye -bye. Take care now. Yeah. All right, folks, you heard it. Stephen Kotler, the man with the plan on flow. Wow. What an interesting guy. Man, I can't wait to come back and have another combo with him. Very, very cool. So I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for staying uh, focused, whether you were driving while listening to that. Hopefully you didn't um, drive off the road with some of the crazy things we talked about. And um, as usual, uh, at least right now, until AI kind of kicks in, you have got to do the work. The training starts with you and your daily practice. So do the work every day. Show up. Practice the big four skills. Learn to trigger and activate flow. And um, evolve yourself so that we can stay ahead of the curve. Till next time, Mark Devine out. Hoo-yah. Sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frog